0: Well, good morning. Don't often get to see, say that to you as a group, so I'm going to take advantage of it. Uh, this month, or this summer, Todd has uh, begun a series, or a, a summer series, in the I Am's of Scripture. In particular, those found in the book of John. And uh, for those of you who are visitors today, just to kind of bring you up to date a little bit, uh, you might ask the question: Why would we study the passages that have Jesus saying "I am"? Well, the reason is, I think it would uh, be arresting to us if we got to a point in the book of John where the the religious establishment asked him the question, you're not greater than our father Abraham, are you? After all, he died. And Jesus' answer to them was, before Abraham existed, I am. And that sounds like a funny thing to say, but they picked up stones with the idea of killing him on the spot. The reason that they did was because back in Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, back in uh, Exodus, we're going to start back there real quick. If we go back to the book of Exodus chapter 3, we're at that place where Moses had gone to the land of Midian and had um, been out shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. And he looked over here and he saw a bush burning, but it wasn't being consumed. All of you probably remember that story. Uh, if you saw the, the movie, The Ten Commandments, it was depicted there in the life of Moses. So it's a famous story. Moses went over to check it out. And when he got there, he found that he was talking with God. And God had an assignment for Moses. He said, I want to send you back to Egypt. I've heard the, the complaint, the outcrying of my people there. And you're the guy that I have picked to go back to Egypt and lead them out for me. And Moses, as you can remember, was really not all that wild about the idea. And so he began to ask God, well, you know, I don't think I can do that. He said, who? hey, i tell you what. If I go in there with that story and say you sent me, and they're going to say, okay, what's his name? Who's the name of the guy that you say was God who sent you back to talk to us? So in Exodus chapter 3, Moses gives that, inqu- that inquiry. It says, then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and say to them, my God of your fathers has sent me to you. This is Exodus 3.13. And they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now that is another strange sounding thing. You can understand now why the Pharisees were mad at Jesus when he claimed This thing before Abraham was, I am. God had used this with Moses to introduce his eternal name. This is a name that the Hebrews, when they copied the scriptures, they would go and ceremonially wash before and after they wrote the four little letters that said, I am because it was so sacred to them. They didn't pronounce or attempt to pronounce that word. They eventually called him Jehovah. It somewhat uses the same letters, but they never would try to pronounce that sacred name. And there's Jesus standing there saying, before Abraham was, hey, I am. Yeah, I'm more important than Abraham. So this was a name that that spoke of the eternity of God. He didn't say, I was. He didn't say, I will be. He says, I am. That's the best you're going to get. And it says it all. So let's go back over to the book of John where we have been looking at these different statements where Jesus says, I am. And, And interestingly enough, it just doesn't turn out this week that this was on the list, but there's a place in this passage And you'll be kind of looking for it, but Jesus will say this very thing. And I think the way he says it um, is very arresting in itself. We're going to talk today about a familiar story about the Samaritan woman. It's found in John chapter 4. you probably find it faster than I will. And... uh, the story's familiar to us, but um, I'm hoping today that, that we'll see some things maybe that we haven't seen. If you've studied the Bible very long, you realize that no matter how familiar a passage is to you, no matter how many times you've read it, you'll hear somebody preach and say, wait a minute, I never heard that. You'll look at a passage by yourself and you'll say, I never saw that before. But I'm I'm taking a chance today that on this passage that's so familiar to you, you'll find some things that you've never quite seen the same way as you see them today. And it won't be because of me, except that I'm challenging you to, to open your eyes and have that vision and understand. I'll point out some things that I've seen that I haven't seen before. And between us, we should understand some truth about the Lord that... Uh, is fresh and new to us. So uh, let's pray, commit the time to him, allow him to be our teacher in the few minutes that we have left, and, and see what we can discover about this woman. Father, we, uh, we thank you this morning for the privilege that we have to gather together, as Russ pointed out to us, that um, it is such a joy it's something that we take for granted sometimes, but uh, here we sit, all with uh, a desire to hear your voice, a desire to have a word from you that uh, that addresses the need of our heart. I know that uh, for most of us, maybe many of us we we come in to this time with uh, concerns about the world outside, uh, the world we live in, not the world right here at Melanie Park, but uh, the thing we have to face after we leave here, the thing that we brought in that is troubling us and uh, makes it hard for us to read the words of the songs and... Uh, Really mean them, um, but we know, Father, that you are more than interested, you are excited for us to understand what this passage has for us today. so I ask Lord that you will be our teacher, guide us as we go and uh, and that we will take home uh, things that we can use to uh, appreciate that you're there and that you care about us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing to, uh, to begin with is that when you read a passage of Scripture or you read um, from a book in the Bible, uh, it really does you a lot of good to take the time to read through the book in fact, is it's really good to read through the whole Bible, but in the book of John or any other book, it's good to know the context. And one of the things that we believe about the Scriptures here is that every word is inspired by God. Uh, Jesus said to the people, Not one jot or tittle will pass away until all has been fulfilled. So we take that to mean that God inspired the writers of the scripture to write words exactly the way he wants us to hear them. We read different styles. We see different personalities in what we read. Some of it's stories, some of it's arguments, some of it's poetry. You know, all of those kind of things are mixed in. But it's all part of what God has given us to tell us who he is. Theologians call it special revelation. General revelation is the creation. and special revelation, there are two of them. One is the Word of God, and the other is the living Word, Jesus Christ. So, I want to set the context just a little bit, so look back at John 1, and then we'll read this passage. Uh, While you're turning to John 1... I'm going to tell you that around the end of the book, in the 20th chapter, John gives us the reason why he wrote the book. He said, I could have written a lot of things, but the things that I wrote are so that you will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, you may have eternal life. That's the purpose of the book of John. Everything in here was written with that in view. Now, most of the time when we read a book, we look at the beginning, and the author gives us some clues about what's coming, and John does the same thing. So he's a good communicator. He tells us at the beginning what he's going to say. He tells us what he's going to say. At the end, he says, this is what I said. So let me read a few few verses from John chapter 1. Start at the first. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Or another translation of that, the darkness did not overcome. Comprehend it or understand it. Now let's skip down a little bit, a little ways here. Verse 9 says, There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, what was called the Word at the beginning is now this light. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And finally in verse 14 he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So finally reveals, okay, this Word, this light that came into the world, became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, it goes on to make it quite clear that who he's writing about is Jesus Christ. He created everything. He was with God in the beginning and he was the light that shines and enlightens every man. But there was darkness that we were in, but the light shined through it, and the darkness could not overcome it. So what I'm going to talk about today, one possible title for this is how the darkness, or the light, overcame the darkness in the life of one person. Another possible title would be, how someone who was not his own was given the right to be called one of his children. It's like an anatomy of of a, of a salvation experience. So turn over to chapter 4. We've talked enough introductory stuff. And I'll ask you, if you will, to stand as I read this passage of Scripture. I know it's a little tricky, but... Uh, We're reading God's Word here, so let's stand up and do that. Um, I remember one time I said, I'll read and you read along with me, and the whole congregation started reading when I did. Just read quietly and and I'll read, because we all have different versions. It might sound weird. All right, verse 1 of chapter 4, and we're going to read a good bit here. Therefore, when the Lord saw that the Pharisees, or knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus was not doing it, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city in Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being worried from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. This was about noon of that day. And one thing that John does here, I don't know if your Bible has this, but where it says there came a woman, there's a little star by it, Uh, In the Greek, sometimes, and we've done this too. Sportscasters do it a lot, you know, where they use the present tense for different things just to bring emphasis. And this has been translated past because we're kind of reading something that's already happened. But here's how it could be read, or should be, perhaps, or would be heard. In the, I'm not going to read Greek to you, but this is the idea. There comes a woman, okay, and it makes it, you know, more alive. There comes a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well's deep. Where are you going to get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Now, when Jacob was here at Shechem, was about 2,000 years before this scene. So it's pretty good well digging. Uh, so asking that question wasn't exactly casual. I mean, this is a pretty good deal here. And Jesus answered her and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will come in him a well of water or a spring of water springing up to eternal life. There's a lot of emphasis there because this is a spring and he says it's like leaping up to eternal life. This is a this is a picture of something really um active. So the woman says to him, sir, give me the water so I will not be thirsty and not nor have to come all the way here to draw. He, said, he says to her, go call your husband and bring him here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you've said truly. The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. This is one of the things prophets could do. Uh, I think about Nathan when he went to David and he told him the story about the sheep and all of this, and it turned out he was talking about David and his sin with Bathsheba. Uh but you know Jesus doesn't criticize her he says uh she in fact she said I perceive you're a prophet our fathers worshipped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship Jesus says to her woman believe me an hour is coming neither in this when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father you worship what you do not know we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am the one speaking to you. You may be seated. Thank you for your patience. Wow, that was long, wasn't it? Um, but I appreciate your patience in listening and in reading through that with me. Okay, the first section of this is about Jesus getting to the well. And there's something to point out in it. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself wasn't baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. The thing that struck me here was the fact that it says in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Well, the fact is, he really didn't have to pass through Samaria. There were three ways to go from where he was at the Jordan River up to um, Galilee. He could cross over the Jordan. Let's say that we're looking, that you are looking north. And so he's down near, um, um, near Ai, or, um, I'm sorry, near Jericho. On the Jordan River, and he could cross the Jordan. If this was the Jordan River over, he could cross over, he'd be over in where the alley is. and he could go up that way. It'd be a nice level route, a pretty easy trip, and he could cross the river upstream somewhere and be in Galilee and never have to go through Samaria. That was pretty common in that day because the the Jewish um, establishment, you know the Pharisees and the Sadducees they didn 't travel there because they were afraid that contact with a Samaritan in any way uh, would cause them to be ceremonially unclean, so they didn't they took that side route, and there was another very long way around where you could go all the way over to the coast of the Mediterranean and go up that way to get to Galilee, but Jesus did not take either one of these, he, it says here um, he had to go to Samaria. So what does that mean? Well, it's kind of like this. When uh, when I go to Dallas, um, I have a couple of choices of how to go. And um, if we go to um, Abilene and take I-20 over to Dallas, and I happen to tell one of the elders of Melanie Park Church that I'm doing that, they'll say, well, you got to go to Mary's. And I'll say, well, what, why is that? they say, well, they've got the best chicken fried steak in tech, west of the Mississippi. And you can ask any of them. they guess, are you going to go to Mary's? I mean, it's just an automatic. I don't have to go to Mary's to go to Dallas, but if I want to kind of share a common experience with the elders and this chicken fried steak thing, you know, I'll take the 10-mile trip over to Mary's and eat and go back, and I'll, I'll get to Dallas eventually. So it's not a geographical decision. It's it's a gastronomical decision. (laughs) And oddly enough, that sort of corresponds to something that's in our passage. Uh, We didn't read it, but uh, after his discussion with uh, the woman was over, uh, the disciples finally made it back, and uh, they had some food, and they were trying to encourage him to eat. They said, in verse 31, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat you don't know about. And the disciples, kind of like the Keystone Cops, are looking around saying, "Who who gave him food? We went all the way to town, and he didn't have it. And Jesus said to them, in fact, Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. That little word that's translated, had to go to Samaria, whenever you find it in the book of John, it refers to something that is God's will, has to do with God's plan. Just as an example, look back at at, uh, John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And uh, there are a couple of things that... uh, He said to him, in verse 7, he said, Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. There's that little word. He's telling Nicodemus that if you're going to be part of the kingdom, you've got to be born again. You must be, that little word, day, D-E-I. It's the same word that's used that said Jesus had to go to Samaria. A little bit further down, um, In verse 14, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You see, it was part of God's plan for the Son of Man to be lifted up, and Jesus used this little word. He had to be. He has to be lifted up. He has to be crucified. So Jesus had to go through Samaria. It wasn't... It was kind of a gastronomical decision. His food was to do God's will. And so Jesus was in the full will of God, prayerfully making the decision where to go next and how to get there. And God had an appointment for him in Samaria. Samaria. All right, so we got Jesus to the well, and it's about the sixth hour. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And the woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, will ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And then the words, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, there's a little problem with that statement, and a little, you know, because we already read the disciples went into town to buy food. So they have to deal with Samaritans. They have to buy they even have to buy food that Samaritans have prepared. So there's something that is kind of weird going on. But the the translation that would be the closest to this would be she's basically saying, you know, Jews don't drink after Samaritans. It's kind of like the old rule, you know, you had a water bottle in the refrigerator. You know, what was the House rule? Don't drink out of the water bottle, you know, pour your drink and leave it there for somebody else. I don't want to go into the water bottle in the fridge and find a bunch of crumbs floating around in that water. So basically, you know, he was saying, look, you know, we don't, Jews don't use the same utensils. That we don't have that. One writer, John um, Piper, you've heard him, he's a popular preacher, but he uses, a, I think, a very good illustration. A lot of us grew up with this in the 50s. Um, if your town had a department store, maybe it doesn't even have to have one. But it, where I grew up is a big city, and we had department stores, and uh, I think I don't know, Woolworth and Walmart or Wal um, Walgreens were even there in those days. Department stores, no air conditioning, but they had water fountains for the customers, so they wouldn't have to leave to get a drink of water. Well, in those days, there were signs above the water fountain. And one said "white," and the other said "colored." It was the time of; it was still a time of segregation. But, I mean, when I say that to a lot of you, that I mean that is just shocking. The whole uh, plumbing system of the of the department store was built to support the idea of segregation separate bathrooms, separate water fountains uh, and that you know I saw that i mean that and and that wasn't shock uh, shocked me i mean i you know I just asked my parents he said well, that's what you do you know and um, i didn't grow up in a family that had a particular prejudice, but it was out there, and that's the way it was well. The fountain, the well in Samaria said, colored Samaritans. And the white boy is asking the colored girl to drink out of her fountain. That kind of gets the feel of what she must have. I mean, you telling me, you guys, with all this despising that you do of us, that you have the nerve to ask me for a drink of water. I mean, there there could be some pretty bitterness in that statement. And Jesus simply answered back to her. I thought um, there were a lot of things he could have said. There were things I could have said that would have ruined the whole opportunity. But uh, he answered and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living Water, The gift of God and who it was who was asking. Jesus was always about telling people who he was. It was important for her to know who he was. And she didn't know. And uh, this gift of God, we look that little phrase up and we find not too far back in John 3:16, God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten Son that whoever believed in him might not perish but have eternal life. This little gift word, that's a very rare word in the Bible as well. It's a word that that has gives extreme emphasis to the idea that it's a gift that has absolutely no cost to the recipient. Okay, it's used in 1 Thessalonians where Paul says, look, you know how we... Never ate any of your food or any food without paying for it. It's the same word, kind of turned a different way. But it has the idea that we never did it. Uh, We never presumed upon the freedom to eat your food without paying for it. Okay? But this word emphasizes that it's a gift. And we've already talked about who he was. She didn't know. And he said, I'll give you living water. Well, to them, living water was the same way they would describe water that flows. So if it was a spring, you know, it could be called living water. It's fresh. It's not like a cistern where you collect rainwater and you get your water out of that. So she didn't hear that. It just went, you know, all of that went right over. She was still on the water thing. So she said, well, you... You, you don't even have anything to draw with. You know, you had to bring your own bucket in order to draw out of the well, and you probably had to bring your own rope. So it wasn't exactly, an, you know, a, an easy process to, to get yourself out to the well and get all that done. But she's looking at it strictly in the physical sense. You have nothing to draw with. The well's deep. Archaeologists say it's between 100 and 150 feet deep was what Jacob's well was which I, I laughed at when Caller was here talking about how, well, it took us all day, we, you know, but we drilled a 150-foot well. <laughs> this one was, you know, dug with crude tools and uh pretty amazing. But she says an interesting thing. She said, um, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? You remember the deal about the religious establishment later on asking, asking, uh Jesus, he said, you're not greater than Abraham, are you? How tempting it would be to say, well, she wasn't ready for that. But he did say this. He, okay, Jacob, who, uh, who gave us the well, drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus said to her, okay, we'll talk about the water. Everyone who drinks this water will have to drink again. And he uses the present tense there. So everyone who drinks, he gives the impression of drinking continually, not just sitting there drinking out of a hose, but, I mean, coming back. You're going to have to come back. You're going to get thirsty again. He so let me tell you, that the water that I give you will become a well of water, and the word there is a certain word for spring, spring and then says springing up to eternal life. So the thing that Jesus is trying to get over to her is, look, what I'm offering you is something that doesn't go away. It springs up to a a new kind of life, an eternal life. He's basically, I mean, and even the, the words that are used imply that he's talking about a transformation He's talking about what Paul says when he said, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. What Jesus is talking about here, if she had ears to hear it, was that he was offering something that would move her to a whole new state of being. That she would be a new creation. And she looks at that and says, okay, give me the water. And I won't be thirsty. and won't have to come here to the well again. And Jesus says to her, go get your husband and bring him here. And the conversation starts getting interesting. I assume that it, this was not an uncommon way of talking to women in that day and time to just say, bring your husband, because normally rabbis talk with the husbands and they explain it all to the wives and wives. But she says, I have no husband. I I can imagine that the you know the blood just ran out of her when she said that, and he said, You're right. You spoke the truth. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. I mean it's like a poker game. She says, Well, I bet one chip, he says, I raise you six. And she's sitting there with just the one. <laughs> she's going to have to go all in on this or it's going to be over the interesting part about that is however jesus said it it didn't drive her away i mean wouldn't most of you if he started somebody starts prying you'd say look i've been here long enough already i need to leave but she didn't do that and she said i perceive that you're a prophet um And um, she said, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place men ought to worship. What do you think about that? And Jesus answered her with words that theologians down through the centuries will turn to as the most important passage in the scripture addressing God's view of worship and God's explanation of who he is. What his nature is. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, she was halfway there. She had told the truth, although she kind of diverted things. Um, But he says this "The, the the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And then the woman says something very interesting. She says, I know that Messiah will come. And when he does, he will tell us all things or declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am, those two words together, the one speaking to you. If we put a comma there, that would be the gist of how he said it. He gave her the everlasting name of God and identified himself as that one. Well, wouldn't you know the disciples showed up right at this moment. But look what happens in verse 28. The woman left her water pot and ran into town. She went into the city and says and says to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ is it? I think it was incredible to her that she would be coming in her relationship with these guys, the Samaritan woman and would be the one who the Christ has come and spoken to and revealed himself to her. Well, they didn't say anything. They went out of the city and were coming to him. And then Jesus goes on in the passage to speak to the disciples about sowing and reaping, and we'll um, have to save that for another time. But look at the ending, verse 39. From that city, I'm sorry, yeah, many of the many of the people believed in him because of the word of the woman, who testified he told me all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, "It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior." Of the world if you knew who was asking you and the gift of God, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Um, it's a great story of the light overcoming the darkness of this woman. It's also a great story of the grace and truth with which Jesus approached this outcast woman. I think if you were to take away one thing from this today, I would ask that you remember this, that God who saves is presented as a God who seeks. Jesus, as the prophet, knew things about this woman that he could not have possibly otherwise known. But he was seeking her. He wasn't just seeing in order to put her in her place. He gave her an opportunity to see that her life was as empty as the jar that she carried. And when she finally heard who he was, having begun to you know, process all this time the things that he was saying to her about the water, she left the water pot and ran to tell others. And many believed because of her testimony. A lot of us are like that Samaritan woman. We look for natural ways, physical ways to fill the emptiness that's inside of us. We want more cars, we want more toys, we want houses, jobs different friends, sometimes different spouses, more money. Those are all visible and physical things. And they all make life work for us on earth, but they are not the real need of our heart. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian here or have never heard that Jesus is the Savior. You need to have that same honesty with him in order that he can fill. John Calvin put it this way. He said, when we come to Christ, and this again is not just about salvation experience. He said, all we really bring is an empty vessel, and we ask him to fill it. I would encourage you today to think about that. It doesn't matter what we're doing today, what our concerns are. We need to remember that, that, that vessel is filled by God. And only He can do that. We talked about it a little bit this morning in Sunday school. You know, it doesn't matter what your plans are if you haven't got God included in it. You know, they're just things. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you for including this this uh, tender and wonderful story. Um, I think it would be really fun to sit around and all talk about what we see happening there. But we do see a picture of Jesus bringing the light into the light of this woman who walked in darkness. He brought an offer of fullness to someone who had an empty heart. And a pretty empty life, and father we uh, we confess that uh, we sometimes find ourselves at the end of our own ropes, and this is only the the only time when we realize that that we have nothing to offer what we need uh, what you have. We thank you, Father, that as a loving god you. Continually seek to demonstrate your power in even folks like us. In Jesus' name, amen.